So hello, thank you for joining hello, us hello. for this discussion for the Scottish Centre for Global History. I'm Rory Bannerman and for this podcast I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Mark Blythe. Mark is a political economist and is currently the Professor of International and Public Affairs at the Watson Institute at Brown University, if I've got that right. That's true, absolutely. absolutely. Um, he's written several books, most recently Angry Nomics, co-authored with Eric Lonergan, which we will get on to discuss, as well as being more generally known for coining the term global Trumpism and being one of the few to predict and offer a, a decent explanation for the Brexit and Trump votes back in 2016. So thanks for agreeing to come on, Mark. Oh, it's, it's always good to come on, as long as I don't spend too much time on the greatest hits. <laughs> we'll try and talk about something fresh, uh, I'm sure. Um, but before we get onto the book and everything, we have some local in- interest to address because, of course, the Scottish uh-huh. Centre for Global History is based at the University of Dundee. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dundee happens to be where Mark grew up. Um, perhaps at a time when the city was not being listed on Time Magazine's coolest destinations, if that's the right way to put it. I, I would say that would be uh, an understatement, but factually correct, yes. Right. Um so yeah, firstly, Mark, if you'd be able to just tell us of your experience of Dundee, what it was like growing up there, uh, and how you started off there and ended up at, as a professor at an Ivy League institution. Right, and do all that in three minutes. All right, so um, where to start? All right, I'm going to do a contrast. The following two statements are true. Dundee was at that time, and I don't know if it still is, but it was a place of incredible casual violence. But it was also a place of really incredible possibility. And you balance one off against the other. So let let me talk about the violence. These days, parents are obsessed, quite correctly, with bullying and all this sort of stuff, whether it's online or for real and all the rest of it. But not for real, physical, I should say. And back in the day, nobody gave a shit. So from the moment I walked into school until about third year, until I had it out with somebody once and for all, um, I was regularly bullied and so was everybody else. I also used to go home for lunch when I was in primary school and I had to cross a kind of line whereby there was a much bigger Protestant school up the road from where I went to St Peter and Paul and I had to dodge the Rockwell kids on the way home and maybe one in 20 times they'd get a hold of me and beat the living shit out of me and then I'd just go home have lunch and then go back to school and you just normalized this i mean basically sort of the, the the chance that you could get your head kicked in was just you know part of life you just kind of got on with it it was kind of weird you naturalized it and normalized it. it was just i guess that's what it was and you know you look at this you know 30 years hence and you go oh my god that was ridiculous but it's like well it wasn't at the time the flip side of this was you know, it was a very resource-poor environment. Nobody was rich. Even the people we thought were posh didn't have that much money in retrospect. Um, but what you had was a kind of openness to possibility. There was You often get these narratives about sort of working-class life where, you know, you're born here, you'll die here, here are your expectations. That simply wasn't my experience at Dundee, particularly when I went to St. Saviour's High School. We were surrounded by teachers that were really, really supportive and really wanted you to think outside the box and outside of Dundee and that you could have a much bigger life. Um, and they presented those opportunities to you, whether it was through the ability to play music, which I did a lot of, 
with some well-known Dundonians uh, uh, back in the day, uh, whether it was through theatre that we did at school, whether it was through the expectation that, yeah, you're smart enough, why don't you go to university when nobody in your family ever uttered the word unless they were mentioning why university challenges on the TV because that's crap. So it was a very different place from where I ended up. Uh, but as much as there was a downside to it, the kind of like casual everyday violence, there was an upside of sort of, you know, potential and possibility and just go do shit and stop whining about it. Right. And... Um... And so I also want to ask how that experience and more particularly your experience of um, the welfare state and class your class mobility uh, has informed your work today. And do you think that has contributed to you being able to cut through consensus thinking? Um, because if you're, this is not the background that most Ivy League economists uh, go through. No, that's true. I mean, and particularly now, essentially sort of being a professor has become what it was in the 19th century. It's what the third scion of a family does that's well healed, because who can afford to do this these days, particularly when even an undergraduate degree can land you $50,000 worth of debt. If I had to do what I did then, now in the United Kingdom, I would probably balk at the choice. Um, so... I was very much enabled by the structures of the welfare state. The, the reason I wrote the austerity book, Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea, was just, it was precisely this kind of like class politics whereby the people with all of the financial and other assets that were now at risk because of this global meltdown were able to essentially use the budget of the state, which is used for the bottom 80%, um, primarily to basically eviscerate that so that their assets were secure and we're all told that we're all going to tighten our belts together and all this sort of stuff and it's like yeah but you're wearing massively different pants mate this is a very much an asymmetric option that you're playing on people and you know that kind of enraged me and the, the intro to the book talks about that in, in a little bit of detail but you know the short version is you know I, I, even though I was raised by my paternal grandmother my mother died when I was very young uh, all we really had was, literally all we had was the welfare state and occasional handouts from my father, who if I was lucky I saw once a week for about 10 minutes. Um, I never went hungry, you know, I, I occasionally actually did go to school with holes in my shoes, but so did lots of other kids at that time. Um, everything was free, everything worked, you know, the teachers were engaged, they recognised you were smart and wanted you to do well. And then that continued when I went to Strathclyde for my undergraduate. I mean, not only did I not have to take out loans, they gave me a grant to go do it. And the assumption back then was, well, you're going to end up working in a better type of job. So over your lifetime, you'll pay more tax. So why should we double tax you now by charging for your education, which is the bizarre and bankrupting road that we've gone down now. So, you know, I'm very much not a product of talent. I'm a product of serendipity and a bunch of institutions that made it possible for working class people to excel. I was not the only one who benefited from this and there were hundreds of others who did, if not thousands. But now it's I, I, it just seems to be much harder. You can look at the statistics on social mobility, intergenerational uh, or, or other, and it really has just slowed down. Is, was that a grant for an undergraduate? Uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, I know exactly. Imagine that you actually got a grant. Yeah, and, and yet the country's, and the country's never been richer, right? So why are you doing this? Because basically corporations don't pay taxes and all the money's gone to the top and we basically don't redistribute down to even the middle classes these days. Pay for it yourself. Yeah, so, you're, so the book you just mentioned there, Austerity, um, that tackled yeah, this really dominant um, idea uh, following the 2008 financial crisis and explained how counterproductive and damaging employing it could be. 
Um, but the world has has shifted a little bit since then. Um, so, would you able? How would you assess how economic thinking has 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 changed in the past uh, decade or so since the financial crash? Has austerity been sort of abandoned completely in, as an idea, or do you think it's sort of lurking in the background, waiting uh, to resurface during the COVID recovery at the moment? Well, I think it's always lurking in the background. I mean, the the subtitle of the book actually isn't isn't just a clever subtitle. I define a dangerous idea as one that's immune to empirical refutation. Doesn't matter how much evidence you throw at it, there are reasons for people to believe it, regardless of the evidence you show against it. And essentially, those reasons tend to boil down to, I've got the assets, they're going to be devalued, you're my insurance, you're going to pay for it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um... Sorry, I lost the thread. What exactly was the question again? Oh, yeah, is it going to come back? Yeah, yeah, is it going to come back? Right, let me go back. Right, right. Um, so it's always it's always lurking in the background, certainly. Um, has it gone out of fashion for the moment? Yes, in part because the countries that tried it were almost completely destroyed. I mean, take Greece. Greece used to be 2% of the Eurozone's GDP. For about, so now, 13 years later, 14 years later, it's one6 Right, we did actually. Did, austerity did more damage to the Greek economy than the Wehrmacht did, right? and that's not a joke. I'm not being facetious. Like in number terms, that's actually true. Um, tremendous unemployment caused a mass migration of young people out of this globe, out of the European South. They're the Italians, the Greeks, etc., who are now living in London, who are now not going back to become taxpayers in those societies. So you know, Europe had, by its own admission, even the Commission admits this, a lost decade. They won't actually explicitly turn around and go, yeah, we really screwed up with the austerity stuff. But if you lead between the lines, they pretty much know it. Now, how do we know that this is the case? Because when COVID came along, what did they do? Direct transfers to households, in some cases up to 80% of your income for as long as it takes. The exact opposite of austerity. Uh, have we blown the balance sheet out of the war? Yep, absolutely. Does that mean that our minds have fundamentally changed about this, though? I would say they've been pushed into a corner in some cases. There has been some learning in some other cases. Um, the effect of ideas outside the mainstream coming in, like MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, has been very useful for basically just pointing out in very simple terms why the analogy to a household in a state simply doesn't work and why you shouldn't expect inflation in the middle of a financial crisis. Those folks got all that stuff right, as did you know what you might call post-Keynesian economists in general. And that has you know altered, if you will, the balance of opinion, if not the balance of forces. Ultimately, though, are there constraints on this? Yes, because, you know, to go back to the MMT analogy, if you're not the United States and you're not the global currency and you actually have to worry about the value of your currency in order to buy your imports, then if you basically do just go, let's spend it on whatever we want, you will end up in a bad place. History has shown this time and time again. So there are limits on it, but what we've done over the past 10 years is expand very much the possibility space of what those limits are. I'm not going to do a deep dive on MMT just now, but just as a as a side point, um, only it dawned on me recently that the, the all the rhetoric about magic money tree, um, mm -hmm. the 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 initials will be MMT, obviously the yeah. same modern monetary theory. So whoever, whichever focus group um, <laughs> invented that, has been killing himself for years, and I've not even realised. Exactly. Um, Anyway, your your new book, Angrynomics, puts human emotions centre stage when discussing the relationship between economics and our current political situation. So I just want to ask, what drove you to write it and what do you hope it achieves? 
So it's a very different type of book. Um, Eric is a very dear friend of mine, and and that's despite the fact that he's a hedge fund manager. Now, you know, when you say the words hedge fund manager, people think Satan. But, you know, what is his day job? His day job is to make sure that thousands and thousands of people actually have a pension, which suddenly doesn't seem so evil. He's the guy who makes the investment choices that make sure that when you want to retire, you can retire, which, you know, is a pretty important societal function. So we uh, decided we wanted to write something together, but could never find the time. But we knew what we wanted to write about, basically, you know, Trump shock, the collapse of the kind of neoliberal consensus, the end of technocratic governance, and above all, why everyone was so angry. And we had a moment when we went to a football match. I'm actually an Everton fan for my sins. And for even worse, he's a Watford fan, if you can believe that. So we went to Watford, Everton, 1-0 Watford. It was a dreadful game. But one of the, the high points of it was watching the sort of, if you will, the Watford ultras, because we were in amongst them. And if you watch the really hardcore fans, what you find is that they don't really spend that much time shouting at the opposition or occasionally shouting at the ref. They're usually shouting at their own players and especially their own fans for showing insufficient commitment. And they are, if you will, the tribal police. They keep you in line. They keep you motivated. They're the people that in the army get you to run into bullets because if you don't, they're the ones that are going to shoot you. And we started to like work with this kind of metaphor of people who are angry, motivating politics. And, you know, the analogies were obvious as we were living in an increasingly sort of tribalized and polarized and angry uh, society, at least at a discursive level. So that became kind of the frame that we wanted to press on. And we found it quite productive to do that. And in the book, which is a series of short dialogues, it's basically like me and Eric talking in the pub for a couple of nights. Um, it's great on the audiobook, by the way. If you want to read this, don't read it. Just get the audiobook because I did my voicing and Eric did his voicing. So honestly, it's three hours and 20 minutes of the two of us having a chat about stuff. So it's good. Um, so what we wanted to do was to talk about certain things that seem to be important in this. Was it really technology that's making us all redundant? The answer is no. Is tech changing everything? No, most of it's a sales job. Um, what's actually going on? Why are people so angry? Because macroeconomic crashes tend to produce financial crisis. And the really funny thing is whenever you have a big financial crisis, you tend to have right-wing activism in politics, historically all over the place, but true. Uh, and we wanted to just basically piece this together into a story. And that's essentially the story that we tell of public and private anger, how the past 40 years of rising income inequality and job insecurity has made people basically feel much more uncertain about the future, how that has become weaponized in politics through a kind of activation of primitive and tribalist identities, um, how that has overturned, if you will, the neoliberal apple cart that assumed everything was fine just because the top 10% were fine. So there is a slightly healthy side uh, to populism, not the, the nasty right-wing side, but you know, if we remember at one point there was a left populism as well with Podemos and Corbyn and, and uh, and Bernie Sanders and other such folks. Uh, but nonetheless, we wanted to understand that. But then to go beyond it and actually talk about what should we do about it. And, you know, we do spend quite a bit of time in, in the book on sort of solutions that are slightly different and we hope innovative and somewhat useful. Yes, to get on to your, your solutions, um, you kind of, instead of a, a comprehensive complete policy package, you, you're, you're kind of just trying to illustrate what you could potentially have uh, as uh, as, as solutions to some of these problems, such as a sovereign wealth fund that would redistribute wealth in exchange for people letting companies access their data, is one of the one of the main ones you mentioned. Um, but I want to ask how important you think ideas themselves are um, 
in, in terms of the, the role that they have in bringing about positive societal and economic change. As someone who studies the history of ideas, it would be great news for me if ideas are... <laughs> um, but um, I do think, yeah, we do need to give some credit to people that say that the role of power structures and the role of big money and uh, big capital and corporations um, is, is, is perhaps more important here. So uh, what do you think? And I always I mean much of my early academic career was precisely around the ideas versus interest question, and I just always kept saying, "Well, why do we have to choose? People have ideas about their interests, right?" So I mean, I can tell the story about the United States through very rationalist, materialist terms about how the business models of different states are very different, and blue states are kind of post-carbon, and red states are pure carbon, and the red states don't trust the blue states to bail them out to do the transition, and that's why you're stuck. And I think that that's true. But then, then I ask another question. Do people really think in those terms? Are they actually are they wandering or are they driving around in their F-150 going, you know, I'd like to go along with the green transition, but I just, you know, I think this is a trust game between us and the lefties on the coast. I don't think people are really thinking like that. So what do they think about? Well, they think about, you know, putting pu- putting food on the table. But they also think about climate change and they think, you know, is it really the case that everything I've done trying to be a good person and run my life for the past 40 years is going to destroy my children's future? That's a hard one. Isn't it easier just to go into denial on that one? Uh, Do they think about, you know, if we think about issues of racial justice, do they want to think that actually really one of the major reasons that, like, my community of white white people have done so well in this country is because of the deliberate exclusion of African Americans from wealth-building institutions for over 200 years right up to the present day? That's a hard one to swallow as well, right? So I think the ideas are shot through everything in terms of how we recognize our interests and what we think our interests are. So, you know, whether it's angrynomics, whether it's the green transition, whatever project it is that you're you're trying to be involved with, it's how you frame this for people and how they accept or reject those frames is fundamental to how they form their own self-conception of their interests. So, you know, there's nothing more insulting than a kind of either a, a, a neoliberal technocrat who wants to nudge you into better behaviours or a kind of lefty Marxist who real thinks that they know what your interest should be, telling somebody what their interest should be, because ultimately it's up for them to decide it. Now, you may disagree with those interests. You may think that they're short-sighted. You may think they're wrong in some kind of, uh, I guess, philosophical sense. They should think the way that you do, but they don't. And if you don't accept that and start with that, I think you, you misunderstand the heck of a lot of what's going on. So, yes, power structures and yes, you know, all that sort of stuff, it's there. But the question is, well, why are those power structures there? Because it's often beyond whose interests they serve. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you eliminated the racial wealth gap in the United States, the U.S. economy would be 10% bigger. Everybody would benefit from that. Why is that not a rallying cry? Well, just one of the one of the... The, the lines that kind of stuck with me from Angry Novics was, um, or it, I think it might have been Eric, um, that it was something like, no matter um, if you have like a, a technocratic idea that's just being pushed and you're not giving people an alternative, then there will always be alternatives that, that will, will be found, but the, the bullshit content might be higher. Um, yes. So if, if yeah, if, if you think that you can establish a consensus, um, don't don't be surprised when um, the people uh, there are people popping up who you don't really understand at all what they're what they're what they're trying to do. 
Well, I mean, think think about it just now, right? I mean, you know, we, we we draw this bright line between sort of people who vax, who do vaccines and people who don't. Those people are good people and those people are bad people. Those people are stupid people. Those people are smart people. Those people are science accepting people, blah, blah, blah. It's like, look, if you come from an underserved minority community in the United States where your major point of contact with the state is basically the police, social workers, and a school that effectively makes you ready for prison, you're not exactly about to suddenly embrace them when they insist that you engage with the public health authorities for the first time. It's perfectly rational for people to have interests which are different from yours given their life experience. That's all. So in this, in the kind of, yeah, climate of, of well, I suppose there's a lot of people could turn a climate of, of disinformation and people seemingly uh, making irrational, irrational uh, decisions to reject vaccines uh, and, uh, and the like. Do people with 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 the good ideas need to be much? Um, how how do they need to be kind of spreading their message or getting that across when when there is this kind of lack of trust? Well, first of all, it's difficult to do so. But the first thing to do is to take people on their own terms. I mean, put it in terms that make sense to them. The uh, the Jean in France had a great line, which I think really sums this up well. The elites are worried about the end of the world. We're end. Of, we're worried about the end of the month. And if you engage from the sort of like, oh, in 70 years' time, the official all died. Well, you're talking to people that basically are dealing with eviction as part of their life. They don't give a shit. And they think that you're some elitist fool because that you do. But if you are to say basically, okay, there's common ground here, right? You realize that housing is a big problem. And if we actually were to take this thing I'm concerned with seriously, we'd retrofit all this housing and build this new housing and that would materially benefit you. You'd be better off for it. That might be a good way of approaching it without insulting the crap out of people. But, you know, it's, we seem to be... Part of the polarization that we refuse to accept is the fact that the sort of, if you will, the academic and intellectual centre-left thinks that they define truth. But they forget the truth is relative to the life, the life experience. And that's where they get themselves into trouble trying to convince people. And that, and that, that brings me to another thing um, that kind of struck me towards the end um, about how... Uh, the, the kind of Greta Thunberg um, message or mentality is is is, is far too pessimistic. Um, that there is there is a lot of cause for hope, um, but um, to kind of to kind of bring it to 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 the well the biggest issues there are can um, resolving these massive issues such as climate change and wealth inequality um, occur without without um, abandoning the things like the pursuit of economic growth or, or ca indeed capitalism as a whole is, 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 is some of the pessimism kind of justified the idea that we might not be able to overcome these huge hurdles well I, I suppose i mean you know i'm actually the next book is actually about this it's about growth and how we should think about growth and you know there's a lot of bullshit in there about growth from the from the pro growth people but you know there's a lot of bullshit from the other side as well i mean i for one i'm not going to walk around in oatmeal trousers and, and never eat a fish again i mean i just think this is ridiculous asking people to do it um branko milanovic had an exchange with um uh, kate raworth about this 
in a form which was the debate over donut economics. You know, so on the one hand, it's it's a great metaphor, right? You want to pull out the inside of the donut to make it more sustainable, and you want to push up the other side. But as Branko points out, you know, when you're doing this, what you're actually saying is, let's have a piece of re- let's have a bit of redistribution on a global level, never mind a national or local level, which should be the greatest shuffling around of Gini coefficients the world has ever seen. Well, you know, it's fine to say we should do this. And it's another one to basically say to people, so you're earning 60% of the OECD average. In global terms, you're rich. In local terms, you're poor. You've basically got 15 grand a year. Um, you're going to have to go down to about 10. That's just it's globally fair. I don't know how you do that. People fight wars over that stuff. So I don't think that's a great start. Moral suasion isn't going to get us to that point. Now, does it mean that you can just grow your way out of it? No. Again, that's ridiculous because in order to bring everybody up to the OECD standard, you need to have three planets worth of resources and clearly we don't have this. So we have a really hard problem. But I think the answer lies in thinking about, well, what do we mean by growth? There is a growth process. That growth process is coterminous with this set of institutions and practices that we call capitalism. Uh, the amazing and Increase in growth that we've seen basically from the 1800s to now, which which is utterly transformative of the planet in good and bad ways, uh, is ultimately baked into energy consumption. So we basically have to figure out a way of having very high levels of energy production, if not better consumption thereof. We need to figure out a way of making goods and services for people and improving their lives and life chances, and not just saying it's oatmeal trousers for you, mate. Um, and you know, both of these are big challenges. But if the answer is, you know, well, we'll just grow our way there, I think that there is a deep problem, several deep problems with that. But if the answer is we just need to basically do a kind of left-wing austerity where the whole world is now never travels, never does anything, and lives on five grand a year and goes around on a bike, I don't think that's going to work. And is just ringing out the billionaires for for all their worth uh, a viable alternative to either of those things? Um uh, I mean, I, I, plenty, I think it... in my sort of lefty <laughs> sphere, there's plenty of statistics about you know three, however many, uh, whatever percentage of the world's wealth is is, is held by Bezos and Gates, etc. Is there a viable means of of um, redistributing that wealth? Well, there is, but I mean, you know, we have, I don't know what you, what you imagine wealth is, but I think some people think it's like a gi- a giant bucket of gold under the floorboards or something, and we just go get it, right? I mean, most of Bezos's wealth is tied up in shares of a company called Amazon. So, what are we going to do? Nationalize his shares? I suppose you could do that, but that would tell every other shareholder that their assets are at risk. They would dump it, and it would lose its value. Also, so we need to tax them. Well, they don't actually have any income. What they do is they have assets, they pledge them against loans. Loans, don't you don't pay any taxes on loans. Well, then we should put taxes on loans. All right, fair enough. I mean, basically, I think you should have wealth taxes. I think you should do all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, the balance sheet of the state is a hundred, if not a thousand times more powerful than even the richest billionaire. So take Bezos or, or, or take, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Mr. Tesla, right? The two of them together, top peak market valuation, if you liquidated all their assets tomorrow, you'd get half a trillion. That, that is a chunk of change. Do, I'm not going to say that is not a chunk of change. When you consider that global GDP is hundreds of multiples of this, when you consider that the US economy in one year produces 40 times that, right? Yeah, go get your billionaires. Great. You know, you probably gather. I mean, if I remember Warren's top tax proposal, it probably raised somewhere in the region over 10 years of about, I think the figure was 
1.3 trillion over 10 years. So it's 130 billion a year on that tax. That's great. The Pentagon loses that down the back of the sofa every year. So, you know, yes, they ran off with all the cash, no doubt. Redistributing that, very good idea, no doubt. But, you know, another way to think about it is what is their wealth based upon? It's based upon a, a bunch of claims to commodify, you know, virtual digital space that are contingent claims upon other people recognizing those claims as being valuable. You walk in and try and nationalize that, a lot of the value disappears. Hard problems. Okay, so moving to um, a smaller scale um, and perhaps something that can be more easily comprehended. Um, you, you've got a role in advising the Scottish government, is that right? I am one of many, and I'm very much a kind of ad hoc member to the council because the meetings are held at five in the morning, and I'm not so good at that time. You also recently weighed into the independence debate. I do remember seeing your face on the front of uh, a national, well, a national Scottish Union. I know. You know, the funny story about that was they asked me for an interview and they said, no, I need to figure out what I, I mean. I, I have flipped. Basically, I, I can see a case for independence, whereas before I didn't. Uh, and we can talk about why that is. But they said, can I have an interview? And I went, no. So they immediately just trolled the internet, put some quotes together and pretended it was an interview. And I went, well, I wouldn't be talking to you in future. Um, the problem with the independence debate is it's not a debate. It's basically two sort of two tribes, one of whom is very, very... Um, firm in its belief that we need to do this. And that's fine. I can agree or disagree with that. And then there's a bunch of people that could be persuaded, might be persuaded, and there's a bunch of people that absolutely know under any circumstances. So you're not really having a debate as such. You're basically trying to tip the needle over some kind of percentage whereby one side wins or the other. And, and, and that's not sort of like good from a kind of thinking it through problem. Uh, my short version of why I started to think this is a good idea my first one is the long run, I don't think the British growth model, how the British economy grows in the long run is sustainable. It's not about Brexit. Brexit has been an act of self-harm. It will survive. But the only part of the British economy that produces value, right, the underlying component of growth, to go back to that, is London. It's London in the southeast. Everybody else lives off transfers. I mean, literally, Scotland is on the dole. And, you know, the Scottish government can produce figures from income that basically show that, you know, the economy is growing and all the rest of it. And it's not simply you live off those wee transfers from London that do your public spending. I'm making the bigger point that if you will think, if you think about it, the sort of the, the whole economic uh, space of the United Kingdom, all of the growth is concentrated in one area. Now, one of the things that we know from studying growth in cities and all the rest of it is that cities are growth nodes. And Scotland has two medium-sized cities that are pretty well connected together, that have got good universities, tech, finance, the whole lot. There's no reason that that can't do a thing on its own. And on its own, it would be its own growth node. But when it's kind of attached, but very distantly attached to London, it just doesn't get to kind of maximize what it is. So I think that as the, the fine, highly financialized British growth model runs into the trouble over the next 10 to 15 years for lots of different reasons, that's an opportunity for Scotland to basically say, well, you know, we honestly could do this on our own, so we should start thinking in that way. The other one is simply a, de a, a kind of demographic meets democratic point of view. Um, yes, the numbers fluctuate, but they don't fluctuate that much. You and your generation, by and large, are all in favor of independence. And since the 1990s, if not earlier, Scotland has consistently voted for parties that haven't been returned to government. 
So there's a democratic deficit and there's a demographic wave. That means one way or another, this thing's coming down the turnpike. Given those two things, the fragility of the underlying model and, and, and given that sort of demographic democratic factor, I think the only smart policy is to, to prepare for this, to prepare for the fact that it, it, it's, um, you know, it's going to come down. I think the last one as well is, you know, what exactly is the rationale of the union? The, the union made sense when it came together 300 and odd years ago. It made sense to the people then. It made sense at other points in history since then. Does it make sense now? I mean, when, when, the, when the British government talks about levelling up, they seem to have a line in their mind that runs from Sheffield to Manchester to Liverpool. Scotland isn't part of the imaginary. In a sense, it's already on its own. It already has its own parliament. It only you know, charges its own course in, in its fiscal affairs. It doesn't have all the tools and trappings of statehood, to be sure, but it is, in a sense, already kind of halfway out the door. So, you know, why not just over a period of time that makes sense for both parties, go fully out the door? So, yeah, in that vein of thinking sensibly about the proposals, put my put my own um, position aside, although you could probably guess what it is, again, given my age. Um, <laughs> and two of the things that you mentioned in the book came to mind regarding proposals for an independent Scotland. Firstly, the idea um, that you talk about that decentralisation makes the possibility of policy experimentation easier, um, as there are just more mm -hmm. models being tried in the world and countries can or regions can look at each other and see see what works and what doesn't and i, I think an, an argument that's often made particularly kind of appeal to to those that are that lean towards uh the left and to kind of build build bridges i guess with 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 those in england is that although we're kind of we would be breaking breaking up the, the uk and leaving uh english left-wingers to their fate of perpetual tory government or whatever um <laughs> That hopefully wouldn't happen because Scotland could then be a beacon of progressive policy and it could do a lot of good things that would then inspire the rest of the UK or whichever other country to, to adopt to adopt these good policies. But on the other hand, you also talk about how in different nations, or different nations produce consuming value, different things. And so it would kind of be impossible to completely adopt the the policy sort of platform or policy framework of one country and just slap it onto another country. Mm -hmm. um, particularly a lot of the supporters of Scottish independence look to Denmark, for example. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you're, you're quite keen on saying that you, you can, we can't just be Denmark. We have to be, we'd have to be our own thing. So, so yeah, how do you reconcile these two? Well, you, you just, I mean, again, it's like, why choose? I don't see what needs to be reconciled. I mean, it's perfectly obvious that even if Sweden wanted to become Denmark, it can't because it's Sweden. It has a different set of laws, traditions, customs, institutions, way of doing stuff, industries, you know, just check the list. So you can have models, but it doesn't mean that you, like, actually want to be them. I mean, the idea of a role model is that someone to look up to, someone you aspire to. It's not that you actually want to be them. That's called psychopathic stalking. Right. So I don't think that like one necessarily negates the other. On the experiment point, I'll give you an example as to where I changed my mind on this. Back in 2014, when there was the independence referenda, the sort of the green left in Scotland was running around saying, you know, we'll be a champion of renewables at the same time as they were saying, we are going to roll it in on oil because the oil price is high. And that was a contradiction. Right. And, you know, the, the oil is definitely done. And the Scottish government's doing some really interesting work now 
on hydrogen. And basically, they have this possibility as the oil runs down of what are you going to do with Aberdeen? It's an oil town. Well, you know, can't we just turn it into a kind of hydrogen town? Can't we basically have a pressurization plant to turn hydrogen into the equivalent of LPG? Can't we build hydrolyzers and then use all the tech and the pipes and everything that we've got and the skills and the knowledge to do that? And I think that's a really great way of thinking about it. What can we, what have we got already? What can we repurpose? What's the niche that we can fit into in the world economy that's going to enable us to pay the bills and import the stuff that we want going forward in a more sustainable manner? So imagine that Scotland's able to do this. They're able to turn around an oil town and turn it into basically hydrogen town, right? Has that got lessons for everyone else? Hell yeah, absolutely, for loads of people. Now, can they follow exactly the same script? No, I very much doubt it would work in Texas. It's an entirely different scale. But is it going to work for, you know, smaller producers? Is it going to basically help, you know, other people who have got these assets think about what to do with these assets rather than writing them off, which seems to be the predominant approach now? Is this going to actually enable us to do an energy transition where we don't just run out of energy? Because as we're finding out right now, that gets really expensive when you forget get to build gas storage. So again, I don't see these things as contradictions. I think the sort of, you know, you can learn different plot lessons in different places and you can borrow, beg, steal, scrounge and copy the bits that are useful to you. But it's not a kind of slavish devotion. They're like, oh, if we only had our own currency, we'd be Denmark. It's like, no, you don't. First of all, you don't eat herrings. And secondly, you don't have enough bikes. So just stop there. Okay, plenty to think about in that vein. Um, but to kind of round round off the podcast, I'd like to know your thoughts on history and historians. What do you think mm-hmm. uh, the relationship in between historians and economists um, is or should be? Um, and how do you use history to inform your work? Ooh, there's a lot in there. We could do a whole podcast on that because that's less about what do you think about independence and more about how do you think, which is often a more interesting question. Um, so here's how I think about it. Here's my cheeky line, and I, and I mean this to a certain degree, right? So what is it that economists and historians both have in common vis-a-vis everybody else in academia? And the answer is that they both sets of people think that anyone who isn't one of them is an idiot, right? So there's a kind of cultural arrogance that goes with both. There's a second one in which they're orthogonal to each other in the sense that um, if you really are a sort of like pure technical economist, there's no such thing as history. In a general equilibrium model, there's no past, there's no future. Time to the extent that it, to the extent that it reverse, it, it's there, it's reversible. It's a Laplacian universe, if you want to put it that way. And you know, any historian worth their salt rejects all of that emphatically. For historians, it's a, an open entropic system with massive convexities and nonlinearities, if you want to put it in technical language. So their imagination of the world, I think, is quite different. The people that I really admire are the ones who can bring them together by a contradiction. Again, what, why see a contradiction? I think people like Adam Tooze, who are just fantastic in terms of the way that they can uh, uh, know, deeply understand the mechanisms of the economic, and then can put that in the frame of, you know, of, a, of history, by which I mean, you know, humans have puzzled over similar puzzles many times before in different environments. And sometimes they make these choices and sometimes they make to make these choices. And it's good to know that we've done this in the past and then we can fight over how we've done this or whatever. But that kind of reflexology where you can look at your own past rather than just kind of generating possible imaginary futures, I think that's great. And if you're able to do that type of skill, that's fabulous. 
a lot of people who do this is a German historian, uh, a German economic historian slash economist, I don't know what he'd even call himself, called Moritz Schlarlich, who is, does brilliant work on populism and, you know, why is it the right rather than the left that seems to come up after financial crisis. So, you know, there are, there are people who I think take the best of both and marry them without contradiction because they're not slaves to the models, nor are they basically trying to make some kind of if you will, a priori moral campaign about history unfolds in a certain way and this suits my moral priors or my political projects one way or the other. I think there's a, a degree of sort of learning and reflexivity that's required, which means that, you know, that if, if I were to describe myself to anyone, to someone who didn't know anything about the universities but understood economics and history, I would just say I'm an economic historian. Now, if I say that to some historians in the current moment, given the sort of the big battle over cleometrics 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the cultural turn in history, the fact that what passes for economic history in many places now is the project of slavery and capitalism, which while that is an, a constitutive link that needs to be made and forged, it sort of is not the exhaustion of either perspective. Um, I, may, I may find I've alienated more historians than I've gained friends, but at the end of the day, I see that as their problem rather than mine. Right. When you were when you were interviewed a few years ago, you, you had to give a few book recommendations. One of them was Albert Hirschman's The Passions and the Interests, Political Arguments mm -hmm. for Capitalism. Um, uh, I found that a fantastic. Um, it's a brilliant book. It's really good. You should read it. the other one. Do you, do you know the, uh, the, the, uh, the rhetoric of reaction? Uh, I haven't got around to reading that, but it's, it's on the list. Read that. That's a companion piece. It's brilliant. The, the thesis of that that it, it's yeah it's kind of looking for recurring themes yeah basically in... all all argument all arguments all 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 arguments about not doing something right conservatism in all its form boiled into three rhetorics uh, jeopardy futility and perversity uh, jeopardy is if you do that you'll make things worse perversity is if you try that they'll end up biting your hand off and uh, futility is that that'll never work. And basically, everything can be dumped into these three buckets. And and when you start playing the game, almost like a pub game, basically, you know, pick up the telegraph and look at any proposal for anything that's like a progressive change and just play perversity, futility, bingo, je jeopardy with it. And you can do it every day. Right, yeah. So certainly there are, yeah, despite being at loggerheads, there is there is plenty of interesting work to be done when combining uh yeah historical analysis and economic uh, or well how do you how let me ask you how do you think about it how do you you know you're a historian you're a historian of ideas but at the same time you're interested in the economy the political economy distribution the whole lot i mean do you see a some kind of bright line distinction between these things um no <laughs> um but i am i'm told to 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 cause as much controversy as possible to get my ideas across. Um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, certainly I think one of the, the themes in a lot of the, the, the way, the way things I've been taught uh, in the research that, 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 I, that I've done and what you've been trying to achieve um, with, with some of your work is kind of giving legitimacy to alternative, alternative ways of thinking about things or opening up um, mm -hmm. al alternative po possibilities and and not um not 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 for one thinking that history is just one chronological thing of this thing led to that thing led to that thing. yeah it's one one bloody after another yeah exactly yeah. the one bloody thing after another school school of history is 
there was never any doubt about what, yeah, which way which way things could go. Um, and and equally, there when you're told that there is only one uh, way of running an economy, um, that you sh- you should you should always think that yeah, be aware that. Yeah, because guess guess what? We ran it a different way before, and we had different outcomes. Imagine that. Absolutely. All right. So I think we'll finish there. Sounds good and to me. You go and pick up your kids or whatever it is you have to do. Exactly. Or, or just go to the school and pick up some of these kids. That would be very strange. <laughs> it's a, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with a little story. Nassim Taleb said that to me once. He goes, you know these people who say that you know they, they, they don't just love their own kids, they, they, love, they love everybody, they're, they're equivalent, right? I often like to say to them, when you go to the school, just take somebody else's kid home and see how that works out. <laughs> and green um, alright and okay yeah thanks again for joining us and thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast the Scottish Centre for Global History bye